I pray that you would help it to see what is right, true, and perfect. That we wouldn't be conformed to this world, but we would be transformed by the renewal of our mind through your truth. And God, if there's anything of me, anything that is of the world that comes into this, I pray that you would help defend it out of my friend's conscience here in this room. And we would leave this place more in love with you and more in love with others as you've commanded us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. We are at the end of a three-chapter argument that Paul is making about food sacrifice to idols. And you go, man, I don't really deal with that, you know? But we began to see that really what it's coming down to is the way we sacrifice our lives for our own rights and how that can get in the way of our relationships with others. And it's caused a division in the church. And so this is the end of the argument. We're finishing it up and then we're gonna transition into a lot of crazy things like uh, women head coverings and speaking in tongues and all these crazy stuff. Get excited, it's gonna get weird and it's gonna be awesome. Uh, But today we got to finish a beautiful section. So let me read it to you, and let's let the Word of God speak. It says this, Paul quotes, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Awesome. So we're going to look at three different questions, and the first question we're going to look at is, what is true freedom. Verse 23 says, all things are lawful. The Corinthians, there's this cultural term that goes around. It's like, everything's lawful. We have, basically, we have all freedoms. Do what you want. Bro, you do you. It's just this cry out for freedom. But here's the thing. When we fight for freedoms, freedoms can sometimes not be helpful. Not upbuilding, he says. If you go back to chapter 6, verse 12, when they're talking about sex, he says, they quote this, they say, well, all things are lawful for me. And he says there, but I will not be dominated by anything. In other words, not all freedoms are really free. Sometimes they can dominate you. So because here's the thing, there is a problem with freedom, and the problem is not out there. The problem is right here in our heart. It's a heart problem. Why? Well, number one, the heart is complex, isn't it? Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. And you go, well, see, I'm the exception because I'm pretty self-aware, bro. I know myself. You know what the other problem with the heart is? It's a liar. 
It's deceptive. It's wicked. If you go to Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You say, well, I, I know my heart. You don't know me, but I know me. I think Spurgeon wisely says this. He says, he who says, I have no sin, has surely never seen into his own heart at all. Man, I spend five minutes with me and I remember, oh my goodness, I am a confused, messed up sinner. And it's complex. And there's layers to this. So sometimes in our desperation for freedom, when our heart pursues freedom, sometimes me pursuing my freedom can actually become something that is a stumbling block for me and for others. Sometimes when I pursue my freedom above everything else, it's just not helpful, Paul says. It cannot build others up, Paul says. Sometimes it can actually enslave me, is what Paul says. And you say, well, how does that play itself out? Give me an example, Greg. Show me what that looks like. Well, let me show you a few things. Drinking. Okay, I grew up in a culture that was a very legalistic culture, and it said, let's hold this up high. We've got some short people in here. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't saying you. <laughs> that was good. Um, I grew up in a culture that said, man, you can't drink. Drink is wrong. Drinking is sin. Alcohol is sin. You can't do that, right? And this legalistic culture said, you're not allowed to do that. But then I read the Bible, and the Bible says, no, drinking is not a sin, but getting drunk is. And there's this middle line, but on the other end, there's this licentiousness that can come in, right? So there's legalism, but then there's licentiousness, license. And it's like, well, no, listen, I got the freedom to drink. I can drink. I just can't get drunk. And here's the problem, though. It can become a stumbling block. Then when I get around my brother, who's, his struggle is alcohol. And I'm like, hey, man, let's go to the bar. Let's go get some drink. Hey, come over to my house. Hey, you want a beer? And I'm just continuing to create this stumbling block and put in his life with my freedom. See how that happens? Maybe that doesn't apply to you. Let's go to the next one. I'll take this. Freedom of speech. Oh, boy, Cody, Wyoming, we love our freedom of speech. I should never be held back from saying what I want to say. Right? And there was the legalistic side. It's like, no, the legal, legal right is I can say what I want to say, the freedom of speech. Yeah, you're right. You've got the freedom to do that. But then there's others who have a license who will then go say things in gossip that are not helpful. How many times do you already cast a judgment on that person and so you, now you feel like you have the right to say whatever you want behind their back. No, they're just an evil person. If you knew them, you would agree with me, Greg. And so we think that we can say whatever we want. But here's the reality, guys. You have the freedom of speech, but not all speech is helpful. Not all of it builds up. That's true. Is there a balance to it? Yes. But license to do whatever and legalism don't help. Okay? Maybe that doesn't apply to you. Maybe you've got great speech. Social media. There's a legalistic side where there's, oh, sorry about that. I don't know what I did. Um, there's a legalistic side where it's like, you know, all these young people with their social media, it's just sin. It's Satan's in social media, right? You should never have social media. And you know what? Yes, there are some broken things about it, okay? But the reality is social media is not inherently evil. But when you run completely in your license to say, but I could do whatever I want with it, right? Like, yeah, the message deletes. Nobody even knows about it. Let's just let it be the way it is, okay? I can post about these things and continue to put images in my face. And yeah, maybe I struggle with the comparison game, but who cares? I'll just scroll from 500 pictures of the things I don't have. And it's not helpful. It's not building you up. It's actually tearing you down. Sex. 1 Corinthians 6. Man, this is a struggle point in our culture, right? There's the legalistic side when I grew up and say, man, sex is evil and it is wrong. Well, then while I was still not a Christian, I had sex, and I was like, actually, it's pretty good. It's awesome. So whatever you're saying now, I don't trust it. 
But the Bible tells us actually what? That it is a good thing. It's a great thing. It's a fantastic thing. It's how I have three children. But when we give full self to license and I chase the freedom in my sex to do whatever I want, sometimes that sex can dominate. And for me, it did dominate me in addiction to pornography. And you say, well, it's just images. It doesn't affect everybody. But yes, it does. It has an effect and an impact on the way I've used my wife when I got married. And it brought brokenness. Yes, you could chase your freedoms. But here's the problem. When we chase all these freedoms and we keep our eyes fixed on those freedoms and I'm going to chase those, we forget that there's a person behind all of that. You and others that it affects. And when I chase my freedoms, I find a lot of times when I make them the center of the conversation, my freedoms, ultimately I'm caring more about me than I am caring about others. And two, I've also found that it can have the ability to enslave me. It can have the ability to enslave me. Now, don't get me wrong. Some freedoms are good and they are worth fighting for. But my point is, what we have the right to should never have the right to enslave us, okay? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. We live in a culture full of freedoms. You know how we can test to figure out whether or not that freedom right there is in a good place? What happens when that freedom is taken away from us? When somebody takes the freedom of speech or the freedom of sex or the freedom of social media or the freedom of your phone or the freedom to drive as fast as you want or whatever the freedom you think you have and they take it from you, does it feel like it tugs on your heart a little bit? Do you emotionally kind of get out of, out of whack? There's a reason. It's because your heart is chained down to that freedom. But I have a question for you. What is the truest freedom that we can ever experience, can never be taken away? We will always have it. And no matter what freedoms we have or don't have, we'll still, still be okay. Let me tell you what it is. The truest freedom in the whole earth is the presence of God. The truest freedom that you can ever have is the presence of God. How do I know that? 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Other translation says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, liberation. Is this true? Yes. Is it true? Well, here's the thing. Is the Bible true? If you think the Bible's true, you don't have to agree with me, but if you think the Bible is true, let me show you something. In the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, when everything was good, where was the Spirit of the Lord? With Adam and Eve, walking together in the garden. They got to be present. When everything was as it should be, they were present with God. But then temptation and sin came in. And what does sin do? It separates us from the presence of God. And humanity was then separated. And what was very good began to be very bad. And so the generations begin to move forward without the presence of God, and we see sin continue to spiral and go crazy, and people chasing their freedoms as they want them. Well, finally, God takes a people, and he purchases them out of slavery to Egypt, and he brings them out in an exodus into the wilderness. And when he brings them out, he says, I'm going to be your God. You are going to be my people. Here's how you live with me. Here's how you walk with me. 
And then he gets them organized in a camp. And at the center of the camp, he places a tent. He says, I want you to build this tent. And in the tent are all these images of the garden. This garden-like imagery to hearken back to the days where we used to be with God. And there's all these rules that go around it that are things that were natural for us in the garden, but because of sin, we need to be reminded. And then in Exodus chapter 40, we get to read this. This is amazing. Then the cloud, cloud of fire, covered the tent of meeting in the midst of the people. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's presence in the midst of the camp of Israel. But then we read this. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The presence of God was in the midst of the people, but with tragic limitations. Even the great Moses couldn't step in. Nobody was walking willy-nilly into the presence of God and living to talk about it. Do you hear that? And so... Eventually Solomon built a temple. The same thing happens. The Spirit of God descends. So many, still, nobody could be in the presence of God. Eventually, in Ezekiel 10, we see that the Spirit of God leaves the temple, heading out the east gate of the temple, and it leaves, and it leaves this sorrowful question, will man ever get to experience the presence of God on this earth? And then comes 400 years of silence until one day, riding on a donkey, from the east up to the gate of the temple comes Emmanuel, God with us. God put on human flesh, humbled himself to the point of riding a donkey, rides up to the temple. You know what he does? He gets up to the temple, he sees the temple, he looks around, and then he leaves. Does he fill the temple? No, because it's not necessary anymore. You know why? Because days later, Jesus, by the choice of God, because of love for sinful man, gets on a cross. And he got on that cross, and he bore the wrath and judgment of every single sin in your life. And God would not let his hands come off those nails until every single ounce of shame and guilt and sin was soaked up in him. And then finally, with the very last breath that Jesus had, he said, it is finished. And when it was finished, does that mean that our sins were atoned for? Yes. Does that mean that we have redemption? We were purchased out of slavery, bought into a life with Jesus? Yes. Does it mean that we have propitiation? That means that our sin was laid on Jesus and his righteousness was laid on us? Yes. Does it mean that we have adoption into the family of God? Yes. But it also means a restoration of the presence of God in the people. If you continue to read 50 days later, Exodus 40 becomes Acts chapter 2. And this is what we read. 120 of Jesus' followers are sitting in an upper room. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. 
and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire, representing the Spirit, appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you hear that? Friends, listen to 1 Corinthians 3.16, and listen with you in mind. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? Just think about that. For thousands of years, because of sin separation, we could never be with God. To even attempt to walk in the presence of God would have been destruction for our life because he's holy and we are not. Every one of us, me included, me especially. But because of what Christ did, not only is God restored to the people, but God is restored in me. He is with me. So what does this mean and why is it relevant to 1 Corinthians chapter 10? It means that the true freedom that you're looking for can or is dwelling in you, guys, is in you. All that you want, all the freedom that you need and desire is not out there. It's in you. So you do not have to look to the local BLM office, to your government, to your coach, to your pastor, to some kind of religious code, to attending church on Sundays. You don't have to look to all those things. You look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, and he says, I am in you and I am with you and I will be your freedom. And so why does this matter? It matters because freedom becomes unshakable when no one can pull the Spirit of God out of you and you can never lose the Spirit of God from you. Do you understand that? When you are saved, He is with you because all the sin was covered. So you don't have to live your life trouncing on the lives of everybody around you saying, all is lawful for me, I can do what I want. Because you have all you want in Jesus. And so they may take your freedom of speech and you say, that's fine. They may say, you could never drink alcohol again. You'd be like, no, that's fine. They say, sex is now confined to just your marriage. You'd be like, that's fine. I have the Lord. Think through that. It's an unshakable freedom. Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. There's a phrase that floats around in Christendom that I think is really helpful and it really brings this point home. You, maybe you've heard it. It says this, you will never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all that you have. Friends, you have a lot of things that you don't need. And that's okay. That's great. Praise God. And you have a lot of things that you do need. That's great. Praise God. But for those of us who have Jesus, we can take everything that we have and we can open up our hands, we can open up our hearts, say, God, you can have all of it. It's all yours. You gave it to me anyways. So you can have anything. And in that moment of raising up our open hands and our open hearts to God, Those who trust in Jesus with a full faith, knowing he's with them, says, you can have everything. Because if you take everything, God, I still have you. And you will never leave me or forsake me. Is that true for you? Presence of God is where true freedom is found.
That is where it is found. So let me restate point one. The truest freedom we can find is found in the presence of God. So we must be present with God. Let me tell you something, guys. You've been told, read your Bible, attend church on Sundays. You think that God wants you to to, to just serve and pray and fast and Sabbath and meditate and give away all your money. God's not asking you to do all those things so that you could prove whether or not he's worth your time. The cross is proof that you are worth his time. He wants you to do all those things. Listen to me, because he just wants to be with you. He wants you to be with him because he is the best thing for you. You tracking? He's the best thing. The greatest thing about outposts is the God of outposts. So, Galatians 5.13. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. When your life is characterized by freedom found in the presence of God, one of the natural overflows will be to seek the good of your neighbor. It's just natural. So what is the greatest good that we could seek for our neighbor? That's the second question we have. What is the greatest good? Verse 24, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. There's three questions that come to my mind when I hear this. Number one, what does good mean? Number two, am I seeking what I think is good for them? Or number three, do I seek what they think is good for them? Well, let's go to number one, what is good? Well, we Christians, we just established that we believe that the greatest good is God himself, right? You believe that? That God is our greatest good. And if God is our greatest good, and having a present relationship with him is the greatest thing we could ever have. It's the truest freedom that there is on earth. Isn't that the greatest good we could seek for our neighbor? If you're a Christian, the answer is yes. The greatest thing, the greatest good you could ever seek for another person is that they experience the goodness of God and they get to have a present relationship with him. That's it. Which leads to the next question. Do I seek what I think is good or do I seek what they think is good? Well, let me ask you. Why wouldn't you seek what you believe is the greatest good? Because they're going to seek the, what they think is the greatest good for you and others. If you think that the remedy is Jesus, why, just answer that. Why wouldn't you? It's kind of like this. Imagine that there was a sickness going all over the world, not COVID, but a sickness that was killing 100% of the people who got it, and it was spreading like wildfire. You were losing cousins, you were losing aunts, you were losing uncles. It was killing everybody. If you got it, it was a death sentence. You would die. And suddenly, you got that sickness. And you knew, I'm going to die. I've got it, there's no changing it. But then, imagine this. Imagine I've got a vaccine. My wife is like, this is a dangerous analogy, Greg. Imagine I've got a vaccine that works 100% of the time, saves every life, and it has no side effects. And I've got that. And I've got a dose for myself, and so does me and my friends. And we've got thousands in our closet. Imagine that we have that, and we were telling nobody. How would that make you feel? Pretty heartbroken, right? You're saying, wait, you had this last month. My daughter died last month. Why didn't you say something? You would probably call me a murderer. You would call me evil. You would call me crazy. 
Friends, we have the remedy for the culture, and it's Jesus Christ. And so many of us, we've received it for ourselves, but we're unwilling to share that with anybody. And maybe it's because we don't really believe that Jesus is the remedy that Cody needs. Be confronted by that question for just a second. Do you really believe that Jesus is the remedy? And then now let me ask you, would your life prove that? I don't mean that in a mean way, but I am confronted constantly with how I will enjoy the remedy, but I won't share it with others. Friends, we got to realize it's a tragedy when we, like legalists, live lives saying, you know what, I'll tell you about the gospel, but don't be coming in here all drunk or hungover and high, okay? Get yourself cleaned up, okay? Get your sex life straightened out and all that, and then I'll talk to you. Stop being so needy and all that stuff, and then I'll invite you to my house and we'll talk about the gospel. That's a legalistic mindset. That's not Jesus-operated. But then there's the licentious way that we live our lives, which is I'm enjoying my freedom and I want to go out and enjoy my freedoms and I just don't have time for you to hear your stuff. I don't really want to hear about your sickness. I was healed, so I kind of just want to go and enjoy it. Have you guys heard of this? Right, the, the righteous huddle that we can get into, that inward circle of like, oh, you're, you're sick? Hey, come back on Sunday. Let's hang. That's not the way of the Lord. I think a good example of this is my friend Blake Donnelly. Blake uh, and his wife served with Free, Free Burma Rangers. They were supposed to be here today to speak with you about what God has been doing in Burma through their family and in the Middle East. But the reason that Blake is not here today is because the day he was supposed to get here, he was on a flight to Afghanistan. Now here's the thing. Him and his family have been serving in very hard environments over in Burma and the Middle East, been serving these places, and they were home on furlough to be home, to kind of rest, to see family, to rejuvenate, to, to raise funds and these kind of things, but to have some rest as a family. And during his rest, which he has the freedom and the right to, he kept getting phone calls saying, would you please come and help? Would you please come and help? Would you guys, would the, would the Rangers please come out and help us? And so when I called him, he said, hey, brother, I'm getting on a flight tomorrow, I'm leaving for Afghanistan, and we're going to postpone this rest we're supposed to have. Did he, that is a man who didn't allow his freedoms to dictate love for others. Do you see that? And he's in Afghanistan creating a portal for more people to follow him in so they can help people who are in need. Cody Church, let me ask you, are we creating portals for people to come and experience Jesus, setting aside our freedoms that, yes, you do have the right to, so that those who might die might receive life? In Corinth, that was the problem. They were seeking their own desires rather than seeking God's desire for their neighbor. And they got caught up in food that they were going to eat. They got caught up in, you know, what they want to be able to do, who they want to have sex with, all these kind of things. And they were so caught up in these freedoms, they forgot how to love. And I don't think that's just true for the Corinthian Christians. I think that's true for the Cody Christians as well. And I confess my sin. Far too often I seek what I want and what I think I have the freedom to rather than seeking the welfare of my neighbor. Man, what a shame. So let's go to the last point. What does it look like to really do this? All right? Do we need to go get some tracks, hit the streets, 
start dishing out tracks to everybody. Anybody ready to get a, like a, a little like PA system and a microphone, get on the street corner, let's start preaching. Hellfire and brimstone, you are going to hell unless you believe. Is that what we need to go do? Let's talk about what we need to do. Verse 31 says this. So we're skipping all the way down. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What does that mean? I think sometimes when we think the glory of the Lord or glorifying the Lord, it gets mixed up in a bunch of religious jargon, and it's really not ultimately that helpful. And so properly defined, to glorify is to publicly praise, honor, and give fame to. To praise, honor, and to make famous. Another way of defining to glorify is to light something up brilliantly, to cast a light on. So what do we do that? How do we do that? Where do we do that? We do that, he says, when we eat and drink. But not only when we eat and drink, he says, what? Whatever you do. What do you guys like to do? Anybody here like to hunt? To the glory of God. Any of you guys like to eat? This guy? To the glory of God. Right? Hey, uh, Deb, you mind turning it down a little bit? It's just, it's been hot. You guys like to do stuff. I know you like to do stuff. Snowmobiling, skiing, playing football, shooting things in the face. You like all these things. You could do that to the glory of God is what he's saying. He said, do everything to the glory of God. Listen, this is revolutionary. And I'm telling you right now, if you understand the heart issue, which is God is present with you, and then you move to the greatest thing you can give to another person is the presence of God. And then you move to the final thing, which is do everything to glorify and magnify God. Then we're on track to see a renewal in Cody that would lead to a revival in the basin. This is revolutionary. Why is it revolutionary? Because here's what you do, church. You segregate the sacred to pieces of your life rather than your life. And we say, oh, this is my hunting time. Oh, this is my date time. This is my school time. And then this is my Jesus time in the morning or on Sundays or a community group or when you're rolling your car listening to Christian radio, which is just like God awful. And you're just having that time. But we segregate it to this certain little piece right here. We say, God, you know what? You can have 10% of my money and 10% of my time and 10% of my heart. I love you. But Paul just said, you can glorify God when you eat your waffles in the morning. You can glorify God in uh, when you go to the gym. So me and my wife have actually been starting to do Sabbath. We study biblical Sabbath and we're like, what does it really look like to Sabbath? Because our life, like many of you, you use this word and it's the B word. You know what it is? You're busy. You're all busy. And so at our community group, we call that the B word. Stop being the B word. Okay? And so we've been really busy and there's been a lot of problems and we needed a heart check. You know that God established a heart check into the life and flow of life, which is called Sabbath, a day of rest. And so Bonnie and I started taking that. The first day that we did that, we wanted to have a whole time from uh, Sunday evening. So tonight, this is when we do it, tonight, all the way till Monday night, we rest. And what does that look like? It means I take naps. It means I eat. It means I have some wine. It means that I'm going to go on a walk or a bike ride with my kids. 
It means I'm going to read my Bible. It means I'm going to spend some time in prayer. It means I'm just going to sit sometimes and look out the window aimlessly. I'm just going to sit. You know what's funny? It's one of the hardest things to do in your life is to do nothing. Anybody experience that? And so I'm sitting there fighting like crazy to try to do nothing. But one of the things that does fill my soul is going to the gym. So the first time that we did this, I went to the gym. And you know what? I said, I'm going to the gym for the glory of the Lord. And so I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to enjoy some time. So I got my stuff together. I went to the gym and I was just like, I wanted to live in thankfulness. God, thank you for the body I have that I can do this thing called CrossFit. And I can hang out with these people and I get to have conversations. And I was just thankful for each of the, the people in the class like I've got to spend years with. And I just left there going, that was awesome. And then the next day, it was Tuesday, and I got my stuff together and I went to the gym. And I was like, man, Sabbath day gym is awesome. And you get it, right? You got what I got. I was like, what in the world is the difference between yesterday going to the gym and today going to the gym? You know what the difference is? My mind and my heart. That's the difference. I can glorify God every time I go to the gym. I can glorify God every time I look out the window. I can glorify God every time I eat. I can glorify God every time I have some wine. I can glorify God every single time I enjoy uh, physical intimacy with my wife. You can glorify God in everything. In other words, it's to set praise and glory and honor to God. Why does this matter and why is Paul saying it? Look what he says next. He says this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Why do we want to do that? He says, give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that, they, but that of many that they may be saved. Ultimately, he says, I want to glorify God in everything I do. And they'd be like, man, why are you so happy at the gym? Or why do you do this? Or why are you talking about how thankful for you, you are of these things? And be like, because man, God gave it to me. I'm so thankful to be at the gym just because this is a gift that God's given me. I'm thankful for the kids I have because these are a gift from the Lord. Like, it's, it's not me. It's, man, look at, the, look at the God who gave me these things. But he says, look, I don't want to give any offense. So what are you talking about? He goes into something I think that really dabbles with people pleasing. And I think everyone in this room will all agree. People pleasing, not attractive. You do not get on uh, some dating website and you're like, oh, he's people pleaser. That's awesome. Yeah, sign me up. No, people pleaser, you're like, man, grow a spine, bro. That's what you're thinking, right? Like, make your own decisions, man. Be a man. So people-pleasing, he says this. He goes, just as I tried to please everyone in, in everything, which is kind of funny because Paul says in Galatians 1.10 these words. After just saying, I try to please everyone in everything, he says this. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Do you realize what he just did? He just said, in order to glorify God, I try to please man and everything. And then over here he's like, I try to please Christ, so therefore I don't care what anybody thinks. If I was trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Jesus. Which is it, Paul? Like, what are you talking about? And this is what Paul does, and this is what Scripture does. It shows you two sides of a problem, and both are a problem, but in the middle there's something beautiful. And here's how we can find out what it, what it is. There is God despising people pleasing, and there is God honoring people-pleasing. What's the difference? God despising people-pleasing is when you are seeking to please others, meticulously thinking about every conversation and trying to, you know, craft the way you say it in a way to get them to respond to you in a certain kind of way. You know what I'm talking about? But it's impossible, isn't it? You know how many conversations I've had in my head, the arguments I've had to prepare for conversations with Bonnie, and it still didn't turn out the way I thought it would go. 
The Bonnie in my head does not respond like the Bonnie in my life. She still throws me curveballs, right? And I'm just trying to figure it out, right? But here's the thing, and I had, a, I had a, a biblical counselor have to help me out and say, look, Greg, when you buy your wife flowers, and you buy her flowers and you give her those flowers, what happens if she responds terribly and be like, I don't want these, and be like, oh, yeah. I'd be like, are you kidding me? I got you flowers. He goes, if that's the case, then you care more about you than you ever did about her. You bought her flowers for you, not for her. He goes, you know what it looks like to really seek her pleasure? Is that you seek to love her by buying her flowers regardless of what her reaction is going to be. If she's got a bad reaction, you say, it's okay, I love you. So, I think we know God despising people pleasing. Let me give you three questions to figure out what does it look like to really please people in a way that glorifies God. Number one, how concerned am I about me in this situation? Now, we're talking about the church and the gospel and the mission of God here, not just your marriage, but it applies to everything. How concerned are you with you? Now, I love me some me, and me can get a little too involved in everything about you. And so we've got to test, are we fishing for a response or are we fishing for Christ? Number two, what do I want most for this person? Parents, I want you to think about your kids. What do you want most for them? If you're a Christian, what's the greatest good you could ever showcase to them? It's Jesus in the presence of God. Jesus in the presence of God. Being, having a present relationship with him. The best way, number two, that you could showcase that is using everything to the glory of God. Hey, son, let's be thankful for the food that we have. All glory to God that he's provided for us every day. What a gift. Hey, son, what a, let's praise God. You get to play football. What a gift. Man, praise God for your body. Isn't it amazing? Thank him. Everything. What are you really seeking for your neighbor? What are you really seeking for your coworkers? What are you really seeking for your spouse? What are you really seeking for your community groups? What is it that you want for them? And number three, how content are you to get out of the way? What if we never heard your name, but your, your life changed their life for eternity? How content are you to get out of the way? He says, look, I, I don't want to give any offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or the church of God, which is strange because Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 that he wishes that some men would just castrate themselves, which is really strange. Sounds like he's not really worried about offending people. What Paul means is that we should never give unnecessary offense to people, especially if that offense is going to distract them from God's presence. You hear what I'm saying? You, listen to this, you need to live your life in such a way that people are pleased with you, but confronted by the cross. Let him be offensive to them what he says about himself, who he is, what he calls us to. Let them be offended in Jesus and pleased with you. And may it be God's pleasure and your pleasure to do everything to his glory pointing to him. But let me say finally, you cannot do that until you realize yourself the goodness of God as you live a life present with him. Friends, it starts continues on and ends with the presence of God. And if you do that, you will be 
a 1 Corinthians 11, 1 person, which says this, be imitators of me as I am of Jesus. And I am so thankful for Outpost Community Church. So many of you are men and women that I love to follow because you're following Jesus. Praise God. So let me remind you, true freedom is found in the presence of God, so be present with him. The greatest good we can pursue for our neighbor is their enjoyment of the presence of God. Our whole life is an opportunity to glorify God from meals to chores, from Bible studies to our jobs. Everything can be leveraged to bring honor and praise to him. We should do everything we can to please God in everything so that our neighbor will find the deepest pleasure in Jesus. Father, thank you that you set aside all the freedoms of heaven, all the joys of the power of godliness so that we, your people, could be free. Thank you for the spirit that dwells within me. Thank you for the spirit that dwells right now in your church, in this room. You are good and you are great. And may your name be famous in Cody and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.